0: The Athletic.
1: Totally Football Show. Today, battered in Glasgow like a Mars bar. Liverpool, but seven fast Rangers. Are Mo & Co back on the menu ahead of Man City or was this just another nine goals against Bournemouth? We bring you that another other hot midweek takeaways from the Napoli to the unhappily as Toys exit the Mbappé pram again. And Barcelona-Inter Greatest group stage game ever, plus Premier League previews all coming up in this Totally Football Show. Hey listener, Thursday the 13th of October, and what a week it's been. We've got uh, Rory Smith, Raphael Honigstein and Duncan Alexander here. Hello everyone.
2: Hello. 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 Wow.
1: What, What a week, eh? What a week.
0: Exactly, exactly. That's someone at the door, right? Um, I'm not going, I'm just gonna shut the door so the dog can't right. be heard anymore. No, no
1: problem, Rory. Hey, while Rory's just away from the mic, let me say that the Totally Football book is out now for all your reading about football needs and indeed your filling awkward spaces and stocking needs. The Totally Football book it's out now it features writing from all the greats Raphael honigstein's in there dom duncan sasha flo the horn charlie eccleshare etc there's also a day by day diary oh my favorite bit there's a special make your own into totally 150 quiz questions to see if you know more football trivia than our pundits here's a sample don't give the answers away fellas mike Give the reels at the end. Question one, what did Mario Mandzukic do in the 2018 World Cup final that nobody else had ever done before? Listener, do you know? Hmm. Question two, who were the only team to do the double over Manchester City last season? A little bit easier, that one. What about question three? Who was the first English player to score for a non-English side in a Champions League final? Hmm. Lots of nods. Lots of nods from our panel. Of course, you'd expect that. Maybe. We'll drop the answers a little bit later on. That book, anyway, available to order from all good booksellers, including that big one online that pays all its tax, that one. Uh, also, there's a link for how to buy it on our Twitter feed. Anybody else got a book they're hawking at the moment?
0: Yes. I'm, I'm shilling a book. But it's, right. the, the advantage of my book is it features Duncan. Mm. All right. So you get well, two, of, two of us for the price of one. Well. I all think right. Raffi's referred to, actually. It's like a compendium of totally guests. Nice. It's called Expected Goals. It's been very negatively reviewed in the New Statesman.
1: Has it? What did they say about it? <laughs> right?
0: Yeah. By Jonathan who... Wilson? No. They've got someone who's also got a book about data to review a book about data, which strikes me as being an interesting policy. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, I'm going to have some very forthright things to say about the new edition of Sockonomics whenever I get the chance. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Boom.
1: All right, then. That's data with D-A-T-A, I have to stress, yes. in case you yeah. thought it was a book about Anyway, uh, I mean, I've, seen, I've only seen glowing glowing reviews. And not just from the official outlets, but from, you know, people in the know who've just said, this is fascinating stuff. That's what a very different kind of take on... Uh, well,
2: I'm, I'm halfway through it and I'm enjoying it very much, apart from the bits about me, because it's always weird seeing, reading about yourself in the mm. third person, isn't it? When you see your surname. But oh, yeah. other than that, it's very good.
0: I think that probably happens to you more often than it does to the rest of us, to be fair. I don't think mm. I've ever read about myself. But um, it is
1: weird, it is weird being quoted. Don't mm. check out our Twitter feed after this appearance, Rory. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, that's expected goals by Rory Smith. What's your favourite bit of it so far, Duncan?
2: Um, just all the early stuff, like you know, you forget how, how basic the world was back in the
0: nineties and two thousands, and right. uh, yeah. Mm. There is okay. a great line from Duncan in it that that has stayed with me. That, that if it wasn't from Duncan would be his favourite bit which is where he describes the early Opter office where they only had mm. one computer connected to the internet and he describes all of the staff queuing up like villagers at a well which is <laughs> which is, that is vintage Alexander <laughs> Magnificent
1: oh, Looking forward to more of that kind of thing over the next hour or so uh, we have a lot to discuss we'll try and keep it tight but first off Champions League five teams qualified this week across Tuesday and Wednesday. Man City in Bruges, both with goalless draws. Napoli, who be Ajax 4-2 this time. Bayern, same scoreline for them, as they won away to Plzenja. And Real Madrid, thanks to a very, very last gasp draw with Shakhtar Donetsk that also left uh, Tony Rudiger needing 20 stitches in his head after a collision with Shakhtar's goalkeeper. Meanwhile, Looking good and now top of their groups are Spurs who beat Frankfurt 3-2 Wednesday and Chelsea who were 2-0 winners at San Siro against Milan. On Tuesday Liverpool had a 7-1 win at Ibrox against Rangers, they're now one point from qualification. Not looking so good though, Juventus who lost 2-0 at Maccabi Haifa and Barcelona whose 3-3 draw on Wednesday with Inter leaves them third in the group with qualification out of their hands. Wow,
0: extraordinary game that one, Rory. So you called it the best group stage game of all time. I think I said it could be, which right. is or might be, which is which is an important qualification, and I, and I don't mean to be a pedant. It was an amazing game, but obviously, as soon as I tweeted that, people suggested alternatives in a very polite way. The most popular suggestion of which were the were either of the Man United Barcelona games in nineteen ninety nine, and the one thing that I don't know and have not done the research about is whether. In either of those games, qualification was effectively on the line, as it was last night. Does Barcelona? Mm. The desperation that Barcelona showed was just they knew they had to win to, well, to prevent relying on Victoria Pilsen for for qualification. Um, I don't know if that was the case in 1999. They were both fantastic games, two brilliant teams, uh, but last night was the best group stage game I've seen for a long, long time. Unless people have alternatives,
1: yeah. I mean, certainly the last ten minutes were off. Off the chain, as you would say, Rafa. Three goals in that period. As Lewandowski, who hadn't scored since match day one, reawakened to uh, make it 2-2. They, they, they've been trailing at this point, Barcelona, and out of the Champions League. But then Inter came back through Gosens uh, after a magnificent ball upfield from Onana, who just kind of spotted Laura Martinez marauding up upfield. and thought, Oh, hang on. How about I pump one up to him? And then he crosses it. Gosens makes it 3-2 and you think wow that's it barcelona are out but lewandowski in the 92nd
3: minute
0: even after that even after having those three goals in in of 9 minutes to to take the game one way than the other christian aslani should have scored should have squared it, in fact. Shouldn't have scored. He shouldn't have shot. He should have squared it to whoever was standing to his left. It may have been Gosens again, I'm not sure. Screaming at him for the ball. But you also had a good two or three moments where it looked like Barca might break through after the third goal. And just the final pass was missing. You had this kind of... It's the loudest I've heard the new Camp for ages. It was, it was actually quite a high-quality game in attack, less so in defence. I thought Inter looked really smart for... 89 minutes. It just kind of had everything. And the only slight shame, you know, is that it goes to head-to-head. And that that means that there's no more drama, particularly just as long as Inter beat Pilsen, that's it, everything's done. Mm. Whereas if it went to, you know, if it, if it went to goal difference ahead of head-to-head for the tiebreaker, uh, then maybe we'd get a little bit more drama out of that group. But it was a truly spectacular game. Right. The point, as you point out,
1: may well not be enough for Barcelona because if Inter do get the win against Pilsen on match day five, I mean, I have to say of all the clubs, of all the big clubs who might blow a big game like that, Inter would be pretty much the first one you'd, you'd suggest. But yeah, as long as they get that done, Barcelona are out of the Champions League with uh, everything that implies for their precarious finances. Not a great uh, Champions League this so far for Spanish sides. Real Madrid are through. Barcelona very much in doubt. Sevilla, no. Atletico-Madrid are in trouble as well. They're third in their group, two points behind Porto, uh, with Bruges already qualified. Bruges have already taken one of the places in the last 16 from Group B. Rafa, Bruges, the only side yet to concede, and nil-nil this time away to Atletico.
4: Yeah, they probably should have conceded, but Simon Mignolet was in inspired form. And for some strange reason, Jao Felix never entered the pitch, which is bizarre if you're chasing a goal or two. Yeah, I mean, Bruges, I think, are great uh, for for many reasons. But most of all, I think because they put pay to that slightly tired narrative that the group stages are always so predictable and it's always the same teams and what's the point of watching. No, Um, I think the group stages are brilliant. Um, Yes, I might be slightly professionally biased because uh, I I do have a a role to play in, in hyping the product, but I've always felt that, People overplay the amount of sort of predictability that exists at this level and sort of constantly overlook the the outliers. And there's always a couple of outliers. Bruce seemed to be the biggest one, having qualified with, what, two games to spare? I mean, it's incredible, incredible Mm. achievement. Mignolet with 14 saves against Atletico Madrid across the two
1: meetings. Juventus, that was pretty incredible as well, losing to a club who had failed to muster a single point in the Champions League for over 20 years. Every time you think they've hit, their Nadir, Juventus. They they find a way to achieve a new low. And intriguingly, they'll have the opportunity to do that this Saturday. Having pretty much wrecked their hopes of making the last 16, they'll be facing Torino in the Turin derby. Di Maria will be out of the picture. And the, the only good performances they've had pretty much this season have been with him in the team, Rafa.
4: It's so weird how Juventus have gone from the poster boy of professional club management, frugality... Good scouting, good marketing, so just all-round modern and smart to being a total basket case. Um, as someone who's across Italian football more than me, James, how, how have they achieved that?
1: Well, there was this feeling that they had to, they had to push on for the future. And I mean, the Ronaldo thing is, I think what people point to as pivotal, Ronaldo wrecked them. Yeah, is that what you're saying? That's in, in, uh, in not in so many words. Rory's shaping up to...
0: Yeah, I, I think there's an element of Ronaldo's like symptomatic of, of a change in thinking that was pretty disastrous. But at the same time, what, what's happened this season, the unravelling this season is, is almost inexplicable because they haven't signed well. That's, that's obvious. you know. Signing Di Maria to a big contract when he's 34 and is only really interested in the World Cup is pretty stupid. Mm. And letting
1: Kulosevsky go as well.
0: Letting Kulosevsky go. Even Ben Tancur as well. Like mm. They had quite a lot of promising young players that they just kind of gave up on for a bit. I think it was... I like Max Allegri. I know that, that James Horncastle's kind of torn on this as well because Allegri is very obviously a disaster but is quite a nice bloke. So you don't want to say it too clearly. But he, you know, he's a manager of maybe of a different age that it wasn't exactly a progressive appointment but even so for them to be this bad is extraordinary I, I mean yeah you can say the club have taken their half off the board they're distracted by the super lead and Agnelli's kind of made a succession of poor decisions and that they've maybe leaned too heavily into trying to be a lifestyle brand and stuff not not a sporting entity but that doesn't explain the results they've had or the performances that, that, that they've had or quite how bad it's got or the fact that Agnelli seems to think it's all going okay
1: Well, no, I think he's aware that it's not, but he's very, in terms of the Juve brand and what they used to call the the Juventus style or Stile Juventus, uh, part of that for him is the fact that he's not going to fire a manager, and particularly Allegri, who he's pretty closely tied with, in the middle of a season. I think this season, though, might be different for the simple reason that we have a World Cup and thus a pause of kind of six, seven weeks in the middle of it, and if, say, Juventus I, mean, I doubt they're going to make the last 16. It's not impossible. But if they if they don't make the last 16, and if they're significantly far from the top four when we break for the World Cup, they're currently seven points off of the side in fourth, then I think that even Agnelli might decide that it's time to uh, to clear out. I mean, there is so many things to, to say. But I think the, uh, on the subject of, and I was talking about going to the future, but they went back to the past with Allegri, who'd been so successful for them. Previously, five... Scudetti and what was it, two Champions League finals? But this time around, there seems to be no connection between him and the team. One of the major tests, I think, of how a manager's doing is whether players get better or worse under their tutelage. And almost to a man, the Juve side are all playing worse, and the players that were under him last season, like De all playing worse now than they they have been previously. Vlajevic, who they bought for, what was it, 80 million euros, who was going to resolve everything is looking a shadow of his former self.
0: The other thing that I think is significant is this is a really, really bad time to be an underperforming manager of a major team because you have Thomas Tuchel and Maurizio Pochettino who are both out of work and I'm pretty sure that both of them, given kind of how their careers have gone, would, pr- would probably consider Juventus a reasonable opportunity.
2: Mm. And Zizou? And Zizou of course, yeah. yeah. And Sean Dyche, And
1: Sean Deitsch, yeah.
2: yeah. The big four.
1: Pressure building. The other side of uh, things in Italy, as regards Europe, is of course uh, Napoli, who are top of the table in Serie and already qualified. Seventeen goals scored in their four Champions League matches. The record for the group stage is twenty-five, so there are eight goals off that. See so if they can, uh, if they can do that in their final two group matches. Absolutely thrilling performance once again, early on Wednesday at home to Ajax. Are oh, Ajax actually not that good? That was a question that struck us watching
2: some of the defending in that game. Well, they only let in 19 goals in the league last season. Remember, the start of the season, they barely let in any, and they've conceded 10 in two games to Napoli. Obviously, they've changed manager, but I just think Napoli are kind of unplayable at the moment. And it's, uh, yeah, you know, every couple of years, you get a team that, and sometimes, to be fair, it is Ajax, um, that just play really well, and everyone wants to watch them. I mean, my theory, a bit like Leicester, as we said the other day, when they actually respectfully re Richard III and then they changed their form and won the league, I think naming the stadium after Maradona, finally honouring him properly, now good stuff's going to happen. So, mm,
1: Nice theory. All right, Frankfurt at Spurs, beaten 3-2 by Spurs, who had uh, Sun Hyung min getting his groove back. He scored a brace. Harry Kane scored a penalty and missed a penalty. Slightly nervous end to this game, but Spurs are now top of Group D. Only one point ahead, though, of Marseille and Sporting, who are the two teams they're going to be facing next. In fact, only three points, separating the whole group.
4: Yeah, I mean, who, call, who called uh, Spurs the Harry Kane team? Was it Pep? I think it is very much the Harry Kane and Hungman Son team, with the shout for Richarlison. But the rest of the team are kind of just sort of prodding along making things happen for for those guys up front in certain moments in time now when it works it's it's great it's sort of a Conte tactical masterclass very very difficult to play against the results are good but it is hard work I think for for neutrals and even some of the Spurs fans themselves but you know achieving results is, is I guess is what Conte will be judged on but They still had a couple of nervy minutes because they don't tend to control games. They tend to just soak up the pressure and they invite that pressure onto them at times. And even a 10-man Frankfurt with very limited means managed to very nearly snatch a draw. Um, So, yeah, I'm still not quite sure about this Spurs team, I have to admit.
0: I think what what Rafi says about the, the Champions League group stage is not quite deserving the reputation for predictability that they have is borne out by this in the Leverkusen group that even at the start you'd you'd have said okay Spurs and Atletico would would qualify with ease, but there was always going to be a pretty good f- strap for second in these groups. Just that those Leverkusen Porto Bruges, you'd have you would have assumed were all quite well matched, and Marseille Sporting and Frankfurt should have been maybe Eintracht a little bit lower than than Marseille and Sporting.
4: Have what? Been kind of These repetitive. are the Europa League winners you're talking about. Rory. They are the Europa League winners.
0: And, I sh- and I you're talking
4: about Conte, who, who's Champions League. And Marseille, who until. Form is two, questionable.
0: Two weeks ago hadn't won a Champions League game since 1993 in questionable circumstances. And But they all looked relatively well poised. And then you throw in the fact that Bruges have been extraordinary and they become really unpredictable groups. What I think people sometimes get confused with is they're not the sexy groups. Mm. Like you don't get a, mm. a group with Real Madrid in it that's really unpredictable because it's Real Madrid. Well, we but kind of f- did actually two seasons back, but yeah, and last Sheriff. year, yeah, five. yeah. Real will occasionally give other teams a head start, but mm, the, yeah. the ending is deeply predictable. Oh, yeah. well, Real Madrid get twelve points. Not so much for Barcelona, though. Yeah, well, Barcelona. Have, I think this this sounds like like a, like an excuse. So Barca have been a little bit unlucky this year. Does that is a bad group to be in? With Bayern and with Inter, is mm. it, that is unfortunate. You, If Barcelona had been in, for example, Tottenham's group, their life would have been a lot easier.
2: But that goes back to the fact that they changed it so that the, the top seeds were not the eight best teams on the continent, but the, the eight champions of of note. But my theory is why people do think, as Raf says erroneously, that the, the group stage is bad is because often match day five and match day six are bad. And that's what sticks in people's memories. Because as we mentioned earlier... You know, a lot of the groups are already finished. Um, A lot of them can't be, you know, overturned because of the head-to-head rule. I mean, there were 36 goals last night, which is the most on a single day since match day three, one of the match day three uh, days in 2014. I would say match day three and match day four are some of the best football you get every year, and then it tends to tail off quite badly.
1: Not this year, Duncan.
2: Not this this year. year. This will be the best ever.
1: 11 teams yet to book their place in the last 16 of course, the the ditching this entire format not long for now. Mm. I we've got one more season like this. Then how's it going to work? Was it two leagues of 20 or something? saying what, what? What is the deal after that? Swiss
0: model. You just you just, just say the Swiss model and pretend yeah, that, yeah, it. yeah. Just
2: All right. One league of four hundred teams, and they play just on an oil. Googling rig. Swiss
4: model now. Oh, ten, that wasn't group what I was expecting. ten group stage games. Is
0: it ten group stage games? And it's a, it's just a league. It's just a league. So it. Right. It's like a like it's like a conference in American sport, so it depends nice. on your record. It doesn't necessarily it's not that you have to kind of nudge the other teams out, it's that the teams with the most points or the most wins or whatever will, will qualify.
1: I for one I'm looking forward to. Football's new paradigm.
0: Are there not some weird wild card things as well? I can't remember. It's very complicated. It'll make one hell of a go show. Yes, that.
1: It certainly will. That's it why will. they've done
2: it. Yeah. It's community chess, I think. <laughs>
1: Play your <laughs> Joker, and your away goals count double, but for one fixture only. Uh, Chelsea got two away goals at San Siro. That was on Tuesday. Yeah, it wasn't a great game, not least because of the I'm gonna say pretty inexplicable decision by the referee to send off poor Fikayo Tomori, who was looking for redemption, but instead got red twenty minutes in. Obama Yang scored again. Boy, he's looking like a signing. Chelsea kept their third clean sheet in a row with Kepa as well. And that's four victories on the bounce for Graham Potters. Chelsea, who are top of Group E, like Spurs, there's only three points separating the whole group, so not exactly done and dusted. They will be at Villa on Sunday.
2: I mean, just on that red card, by the letter of the law, that was Mm. the correct decision because he didn't try and play the ball. But... You know, if, if last weekend we were back to we want consistency, then Tuesday night was we want common sense, and then Wednesday night was back to consistency in the in the eternal swingometer.
4: Although, I mean, I was a better place to to answer this, but for the red card, you have to deny an obvious goal scoring opportunity. The fact that Mount actually got a shot away. Would you still say he denied that opportunity? I what mean, he hindered him; he made it more difficult for him. Yeah, compromised, but not mm. denied necessarily. So, it felt strange all along, all around. And I must say, some of the decision making this match day seemed to be over officious and too interventionist. Um, I don't know why. UEFA, all of a sudden, it felt as if all of a sudden they've been particularly. Um, sort of uh, pernicious is that a word? Yeah, it's uh, very much a word.
2: There was a Commodore Amiga game called Kickoff Two, which had a, like an incredibly strict referee, and you never knew when you were going to get him, and it was pretty random, and and he would just send off everyone. And I I'm not averse to that in real life. That one you know one match week of the Champions League, they tell refs you've got to be like incredibly strict, and no one knows when it's coming.
4: No one knows when it's going to be. <laughs> love it, love it. <laughs> you can never expect. the uh, kind of referee inquisition (laughs) Okay,
1: we'll be talking Premier League very shortly listener if you're here for Premier League chat stand by but meantime the other big midweek story in Europe came from Paris where one of the biggest names in world football declared he'd had enough we'll talk about that next Would you like to be the fountain
5: of football knowledge within your friendship group either down the pub Or in the group chat, because if so, the Athletic Football Tactics podcast is surely the podcast for you. I'm Ali Maxwell, and every week the Athletics Tactics guru Michael Cox, its data whiz Mark Kerry, and myself take a tactical deep dive into the week's biggest talking points. This week, we'll be assessing the ever-changing role of the modern number nine and wondering if it's having a renaissance, and if so, how Erling Haaland, Darwin Nunez and Gabriel Jesus' big summer moves have shaped that conversation. We're also taking a look at Manchester City against Liverpool and asking if this is still the biggest fixture that the Premier League has to offer or not. Make sure to check out our back catalogue too. Three years' worth of episodes featuring more nostalgic lookbacks at iconic teams and seasons from yesteryear like Carlo Ancelotti's Christmas tree formation at AC Milan or Mesut Ozil's Arsenal legacy. It's good fun and the experts bring a ton of insight. So join us. Just search for the Athletic Football Tactics podcast wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode.
0: On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson.
1: Tuesday afternoon in Paris and kill the surprise from the camp of Kylian Mbappé, 143 days after signing a massive new deal with Paris Saint-Germain, Kylian declaring or letting it be declared that he felt betrayed and wants to leave the club in January. Why and will he? Well, with the club and many pundits rushing to rubbish the story as mere rumours, let's hear from someone who spoke on Tuesday directly to the Mbappé entourage. Jules. Hello, James. Hello. Jules, I'm not surprised they called you with this. Uh, (laughs) He he feels betrayed, so it must be pretty awful what Paris Saint-Germain have done to him. What is it?
3: Uh, I knew you were going to go down that route. Because I know you don't agree with the fact that he feels the way he does. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just, you have to see it from his point of view, in the sense that, okay, maybe he's high maintenance and maybe he's got high demands and all of that. But they they basically said to him a lot of things. They promised a lot of things. Uh, and they haven't been kept those promises. The things that they said would happen haven't happened. Like the fact that tactically the, teams will, the team will play differently, that Mbappe's positioning will be different to what it is this season. He was told that they would sign a a big number nine, like a big name striker, proper striker to play up front with him. That he would not be the sort of centre forward, if you want, the lone striker in the team. But he would would be playing off that striker with Messi next to him. That there will obviously no name out there. The club intending to sell him at the time. And none of that has happened. He... Was hoping that they would be more strengthening the defense, for example, with the arrival of a of a really good centre back. That didn't happen either. I think he was maybe a bit disappointed at times with Christoph Galtier, the new manager, and some of his tactics. And overall, despite being a good season for PSG in terms of results and his, his own goal tally, for example, he's not. He's just not. It's not on for him this season. So I think. That was brewing. We knew there were tensions. We knew there was something happening, something going wrong. We knew he had a lot of resentment. And then all of that kind of exploded on Tuesday afternoon.
1: Tuesday afternoon, when it just so happened, they had a massive Champions League clash with Benfica happening in a few hours' time. Were they unaware of that? Why did they choose Tuesday afternoon just before the game to drop this?
3: I don't think they chose Tuesday. I think, as often with the Mbappe family, it's... It's quite a lot about them, and it's a lot about Killian himself, and I think that's what he wants. That's what he likes. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 for them, there's no an issue with timing. It's just, and if if you actually look at his body language before that Benfica game, when he arrived at the Parc de with the team bus, he was the last one to get off the bus, which is normal. Is everything he does it all the time? Him and his best palakimi, but he knew that the cameras would be on him, and you could see that how he was looking at the camera, he was searching for the camera, same through the game, he scored a penalty and PSG drew 1-1 in that game and they were pretty average. After the game as well, in the things that he posted, yesterday on Wednesday, there was um, he had a day for his foundation in the south of France, in Nice, and again he knew that everybody would be there sort of waiting, expecting to see something from him or maybe to hear from him. So. I think he likes that. He likes that attention. And okay. and I think because he's, he's made his mind up that he wants to go in January and he was really happy for this to be out because he's got so much resentment towards the club. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter if it's a Monday or Tuesday or Sunday morning and night time before Champions League match at all. He just wanted this out.
1: OK. For all the fuss then, Jules, do you think will anything happen? Where do you think he will be playing come February?
3: Ryan Upier is just saying he's he's not going to go in January we we won't let that happen uh, so he can try to force a move he can he can sulk he can go on strike he can do anything he wants they say like no way in January we let him go I kind of believe them but I think it would be very hard as well to keep him if he really doesn't want to be there and if he keeps saying to the club I want out let me out I want out I've got this offer from Real Madrid I've got that offer from Chelsea I've got this offer from Liverpool I can go to Bayern Munich there's going to be a clash at some point it has to be because he wants to go in January and the club doesn't want to let him go in January in the summer it will be different I think he certainly will not be there uh, on September 1st on February 1st I think, unfortunately for him, he might still be a PSG player because, one, January is a very difficult month to do a transfer of this caliber, of this this size. And because if you're PSG, again, it, it would be your season, your second half of the season will be very difficult if you let Mbappe go unless you've got already a replacement like you can bring in Raphael Leao or someone like that which again I think will prove very difficult in January
1: Right because it's not, got the, not like they've got many other options up front Jules, one last thing then before the January transfer window there's also this World Cup thing they're having how worried are you <laughs> sure. as a Frenchman Given the kind of increasingly evident sort of self-centeredness, I've got to call it, of, of Mbappé and the fact that you need a team with real unity and real harmony at the World Cup, how concerned are you with the potential combustibility of the French national side in Qatar, especially given that we've already seen uh, Mbappé kind of uh, kicking off a bit about the over that image rights business what about a month ago?
3: No, it's a, good, it's a good question. It's a good point. At least for the image rights incident, he had the backing, the squad was behind him. They were actually quite happy that he he put himself forward and first to, mm. to, to, to sort of root for the squad and, and get a better deal for, for all the players. But it could be a problem. Remember that penalty he missed against Switzerland at the Euros where no one came to kind of console him, really. And that mm. was quite a striking image. He was not happy with it. He didn't feel the support was there for him. So there's something that Deshaun needs to keep an eye on. I think there's something that the, the team spirit was not as good in, at the Euros in 2021 than he was at the World Cup in 2018, for whatever reason. So this is something I think that Deshaun has been working quite hard on getting back and getting that sort of unity back, not just on Kylian, but in, in general within that squad. So I think this is something that Deshaun and he's really good at that kind of things usually we'll keep a really close eye on. And I would want to think that they've learned the lesson from what happened in 2021 in terms of the squads, where they stayed, all of that was, I think, linked to each other and and that they won't make the same mistakes again in Qatar this, um, this winter. All right, Jules. Many, many thanks
1: for joining us today. Look forward to catching up on Tuesday. Thank you.
4: Julian Aron. Yeah, good to hear Jules on this. Um, I've been waiting for his uh, input. Um, I think it's interesting that we've now had two players sort of unofficially going not on, but sort of on the record saying they want to leave their clubs. One is Kylian Mbappe, one is Cristiano Ronaldo. And it strikes me as a sign of weakness. If you've got many options... If you have a good idea of where you're going, there isn't really, in my view, that need to do that. Um, You can just very quietly do your thing, safe in the knowledge that you'll have a way out and you don't have to announce it to the whole world. So it seems it seems very strange that somebody who's so good would um, would seek that way. Uh, Maybe it wasn't planned. As Jules said, maybe just all accidental, but of course, I mean, even he did within put that, that,
1: Instagram post out on the weekend.
4: Well, exactly, and even even within that, uh, when when journalists then call up his people, the people have said, yes, it's true, he wants to leave. So it is still very much uh, briefed from from his camp. I uh, just don't see, just don't understand the point of it.
0: I'm baffled by. The, the, the use of this word betrayal. So you, you hear, and this isn't a criticism of Jules in the slightest, but you hear the, t- t- the reports coming out saying so he feels betrayed, he feels they've let him down. And then, as you did, James, you, you say, why? And it's like, well, he, he has to play as a number nine. And you're like, well, is that really enough? And then like, I get his frustration that, that maybe some of the reinforcements in the summer that he was expecting didn't arrive. So they tried for Milan Striniar all summer and couldn't couldn't get it over the line. They end up with a defence that's still President Kimpembe Pembe and Sergio Ramos, um, which isn't really ideal. But they've also got Marquinhos and they, you know, they signed a load of quite smart midfielders. Vitini has come in and done really well. The uh, they signed Carlos Soler from Valencia, uh, Fabian Ruiz, like they are a stronger, more balanced side than they were. And it just seems really odd to me that after four months he's basically decided, well, well, no, this doesn't this isn't what I wanted, so I'm going. And there is this weird tension in the way that um Mbappe's presented to so, you speak to people and he he comes across as being, in one sense, a really level-headed, collected, driven, ambitious and professional kind of player. Like he's been learning English and Spanish for 15 years to get himself ready for a potential move to England or Spain. He's got business advisors. He's got a foundation that he's setting up. He's doing all this stuff. He wants to kind of be the LeBron James of European football, which, which he's in a position to do and kind of make sense. And then he... He does this fairly continually and it's it's a very odd mix of a player who is lionised by people around him for being mature, which I think is true, and yet he seems to have this unshakable desire to be a prima donna. And I find it really, really strange to know which one is the real Mbappe. And I think that's significant because if you're potential suitors maybe for next summer rather than January, Real Madrid I'm sure would sign him if they can swallow their pride after what happened last summer... But if you're Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp, would you think? Do I want this guy who apparently wants the entire team to be built around him in exactly the way that he wants? I think that would even for a player of Mbappe's talent, I think that's a red flag, and it it just makes you wonder whether Mbappe maybe is doing something that's slightly old fashioned because the best teams in the world play in systems, and you don't get to say, well, I don't like this bit of the system, so you have to you have to change it entirely for me. That is not the sort of thing that the the elite coaches are going to do for you no matter how good you are although arguably that's what City have done with 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 Haaland but that's a tweet rather than a full change okay. they've they've done a little bit more direct they've done a little bit more not even direct more like first time with Haaland mm. Haaland still does what he's told you know he might not be touching the ball a lot but he's 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 part of the pressing patterns he's doing all that he's not saying well actually do you know what? I want to be right back so you've got to play me there Indeed. All right. Well, more to come on
1: Mbappé and his potential destinations and that, excitingly, over the weeks to come. And next up, hey, let's get on to the weekend in the Premier League.
5: This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham.
0: This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network.
1: Premier League, everybody. Friday, things get underway with Brentford-Brighton. There's four games on Saturday. You've got last place Leicester hosting Palace at lunchtime, then at three. Fellow bottom three teams, Wolves and Forest, meet and Fulham take on Bournemouth. Then, tea time, Spurs-Everton. Five games on Sunday. Saints-West Ham. Man United, Newcastle United, Aston Villa, Chelsea at two with at the same time Leeds facing leaders Arsenal. Only the Aston Villa-Chelsea game of those four, by the way, will be on UK TV. Then at 4.30, it's the big one, Liverpool against Man City. And yes, we better start with that one. Liverpool-Man City, both in action midweek. Tuesday it was 0-0 for Manchester City who wristed players away to Copenhagen. Foden, Haaland, Foden came on, but it was 0-0. Still there through the last 16. Wednesday, Liverpool went to Ibrox to play Rangers. Quite a game, this. Rangers taking the lead in the first half. Liverpool only managing one shot in the opening 45 minutes. Then, in the second half, they found that spark that everyone was talking about.
2: They did, although it was against Rangers. I mean, remember last week we said they've beaten Rangers at home. Arsenal's probably going to be a tougher game. Now, I don't want to repeat myself, but... Let's also point out that Alan McGregor's debut in his career was in the same team as Claudio Canegia. So (laughs) it's been a long stretch. Um, But, you know, Diego Jota created all three of Mohamed Salah's hat-trick goals. Six minutes, 12 seconds, fastest ever Champions League hat-trick. Salah came on and played pretty central, which is but people have been asking for a little bit more as well. So mm. I don't think you can read much into this game. But Can you read will. a lot
1: into the fact that, Duncan, had you pressed play on Tiny Dancer by Elton John when Salah scored his first goal, the music would still have been playing when he completed the hat-trick?
2: You'd have had five seconds to choose another song, yeah. So um, It was a And you'd have
1: one. enjoyed a lovely musical accompaniment to Very the much return so. of, of, of Mo Salah to you know, his previous goal-scoring heights.
2: I mean, I think the thing that's notable about it was that his finishes were, you know, classic Salah from a few seasons ago, you know, no back lift, almost not looking on some of them. So I think, I don't know what was said at half-time, obviously, but it did feel like a bit of a, a nadir had been reached after that first half. And um, we'll see uh, We'll see how it translates on Sunday. But um, mm. it's definitely a, a better position. Say they'd, they'd scraped a 2-1 win or something, or, or ended 2-2, then obviously winning 7-1, it's better. But Liverpool do this. They've they scored nine against Bournemouth. They're below Bournemouth right, yeah. in the league. They won 7-0 at Palace a couple of seasons ago and then went on that horrific run at home. And So often scoring a lot of goals actually just shows you a glimpse of what this team can be rather than what they actually are.
1: Alright. Just to mention that Rangers uh, are out of the last 16. Come Matchday 6 they'll be exiting the competition. They are still on to complete the worst group stage in Champions League history if that's of interest. That's a record currently held by Dinamo Zagreb with no points and a goal difference of minus 19. Uh, Giovanni Rombronkos' side are currently on no points and minus 15, so a little bit of work to do on that. Uh, they and Celtic uh, both now are definitely not qualifying for the knockout stages. All right, are they back or is this another Bournemouth then? That's the question, unless anybody else wants to eulogise further. The 7-1 win for Liverpool. I mean, seven goals to one. I know it was Rangers, but seven goals to one, as I say.
0: Yeah, I think that the, the issue is who they're facing this weekend. Mm. I think a Dungeon's right that it's Rangers, and you you can't be entirely sure kind of what that means. Although I would say that it was a different order of performance in the second half to the two nil win at Anfield. I think that the fact that Klopp is changing formations is both credit worthy and slightly troubling. He's been criticised for being. Too wedded to the 4-3-3. But if you're then they started 4-4-2 last night, they've played 4-2-4 previously. That does kind of suggest you don't quite know what the problem is or what the solution is. But at the same time, maybe maybe the kind of the, the enforced changes. I think Tonate being back is a huge advantage, despite the fact that Matip's really good. Um Gomez makes them be a little bit more defensive, I think, which maybe in the in the form they're in is not a bad thing. And all of that would apply. And it might be that you know if they had. A you know a team from the bottom five at home this weekend you'd say right this is the chance to kind of kick on and um and start building something start playing their way back into form the fact that it's Manchester City is is maybe less than ideal for Liverpool
1: although despite their domestic dominance City have only won one of their last nineteen visits in the Premier League to Anfield both fixtures last season ending two two with the home side taking the lead twice but then getting pegged back Rafa.
4: Yeah, it feels to me, and Duncan might have the the numbers for this, um, as if Liverpool's work against the ball, they're pressing is just a little bit off. And I think the um, tweaking of the system, it looks as if it's a sort of a verdict on the midfield. But I think basically what, what Klopp's trying to do is have the better pressing structure because whether it's a 4-2-3-1 or 4-4-2, it allows you to have four players up front and in theory, have more pressure than with the three, especially if one or two out of three are perhaps not doing their job as well. So I think defensively, that's where the biggest drop-off has been. A Liverpool side that doesn't look sharp, that doesn't win the ball back in dangerous areas, that doesn't make it really difficult to play through them, they're only sort of half or less than, less than half of what Liverpool should be. And they can't rely on just, playing football the way that maybe City and maybe a couple of other teams in Europe do. For them it's all about that moment of explosiveness, that winning the ball high up, that making it difficult and that seems to just missing a little bit at the moment. I don't think it's as bad as some people have said. I don't think they're going to have a bad season but because of the injuries and because of the bad results they're already out of the title race and I think that's a huge blow and disappointment because I'm pretty sure that Klopp would have gone into the season after the way that last season finished, thinking we are ready with this team to challenge again on all fronts, but results have run away from them domestically.
0: Surely he'll have gone into the season going, oh no, it's my seventh.
4: <laughs> no, I don't think so. No. All right.
0: the, the The thing that Rafi says that I think is, has been lost a little bit is, is this kind of scale of Liverpool's collapse. And there has been a, a bitterly disappointing season so far for Liverpool. But they have only lost twice in the league. Mm. And... They were taken apart by Napoli, although although we have seen in recent weeks that maybe being taken apart by Napoli doesn't make them special. Um, the disappointments, I think, more than anything, are the draws, the the endless draws, and the nature of the performances. I don't think that that will t- change this weekend. But what what Rafi says about the the um, the drop off being slight, I think, is right. That it's not that Liverpool are. Infinitely worse than just not doing the things that they, they mm. normally do. I think it's the fact that they're just they're doing the same things but a little bit less and quite a lot slower. It's a relatively minor difference that, because of the way that they're of how fine tuned that system is, has a major impact. That's the way that it kind of looks to me.
1: Mm. Well, I'd hate to think what you guys would have said about Liverpool if they uh, they hadn't won to seven one the, uh, the <laughs> other night.
4: No, but just to underline Roy's point, you see the same with City, or you saw the same with City when they had slow starts to the season Mm. last year, the year before. There was nothing really wrong with it, but just a team Mm. playing that sophisticated football, just being 10% off actually adds up to a lot more.
2: But also it's that thing of back in the day, you could start a season like that and then recover and put a run together, whereas now you can't.
1: Now you find yourself... 14 points behind Arsenal and 13 from City, who are top of pretty much everything apart from the Premier League table. They've scored the most goals, they've had the most shots, they've kept the most clean sheets, they've made the most passes. They've got the top scorer and the top assister. Although, I noticed that uh, Roberto Firmino with yesterday's goals is now on eight for October, which is only one behind uh, Haaland. Duncan?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this game it's probably the most important first goal in the history of football because obviously everyone knows that Liverpool have been conceding that a lot um this season um 10 of 12 I think but if you think back and now I'm going to break one of my golden rules here which is giving credence to the community shield which you should never do but Liverpool did play really well in that game and crucially they did score the opening goal which obviously meant City had to come out a bit more and it was a really entertaining game obviously the the very wrong narrative from some people after that match was that Nunes was amazing which I think is still probably the case but that Holland wasn't ready to play in our league um turns out he is but yeah I think if if Liverpool can take the lead in this game which is a big if then I think it could be one of those you know all-time classics but if City do you know Phil Foden invariably has an amazing game at Anfield it seems to really bring out the best of him that's a big task for for Joe Gomez to keep him quiet if he, if he plays on that side so yeah I mean it, it's it's I mean, yeah look I don't need to tell you and club this
0: but keep it tight for the first 20
4: good advice but that's been yeah. that,
0: that's been the, the one that that was the strangest thing about the Arsenal game was that Liverpool went to the Emirates against this team with all this momentum and didn't keep it tight they didn't mm. seem to be willing to to this sounds a bit judgmental, and it's not meant to, but to have the humility to say, do you know what, these are playing better than us at the moment. We're just to, nothing's going to happen for 20 minutes, and then we'll see, then we'll see, we'll see where, where the wind blows us. I think for Liverpool, the points gap to City and Arsenal is irrelevant. They, as Rafi says, they're out of the title race. The aim for their season until the World Cup has to be to qualify from the Champions League to still be in it in February, which they are very close to now, and to be within touching distance of whoever's in fourth. Nothing else really is, is significant. And you just kind of have to hope that January is a different world. That's, that has to be Liverpool's approach. is you, you cling on to fourth, fifth, sixth, wait for the World Cup break and see what happens after Christmas.
4: Mm. There's six points behind Chelsea in, in fourth at the moment. And then you have a very refreshed, because they haven't got, gone to the World Cup, uh, Trent, Mo Salah, and uh, Robertson. There you go. All right. Well, a huge game
1: and a huge first goal. If someone scores it, 4.30. That one kicks off Sunday afternoon. Leaders Arsenal, meantime, will be at Leeds earlier on on Sunday. Uh, they also have a trip to the Arctic Circle and back, excitingly, to Arsenal. They'll be taking on Bodo, slash Glimpt in the Europa League on Thursday. If the Gunners win at Ellen Road come Sunday lunchtime, it'll be their best ever start to a Premier League season. Not only that, Duncan, am I right in saying it would be the second best start ever by any team
2: in this league? Yeah, and the last four teams to, to start with nine wins from ten have all won the title. So, yeah. It's there on. you
1: go. Arsenal's last visit to Leeds saw them win 4 1, although Leeds did have 11 players out injured or suspended that time.
2: That game's quite interesting, I think, because that was kind of when Arsenal were really struggling under Arteta a bit and that was a real sort of... Everyone thought oh, they would go to Leeds and get dominated and they really sort of stepped up that day. And I think that was the sort of green shoots of what we're we're seeing now. a little bit. Hmm.
4: Whether they're genuine challenges or not, I think we have to give them credit for this amazing amount of progress that they have made this season. I think the jury was still out on, on Arteta not that long ago. I have... A lot of Arsenal fans, and a lot of them were still split this year, this calendar year, on whether Ateta is the right man to take them forward. But you can see now how there is a plan. There is, as we say in Germany, a signature to to this team that you can recognise uh, the energy uh, and the um, sort of choreography that you see, with the way they move forward in in, in certain patterns and overwhelm oppositions opposition teams it's it's quite it's quite amazing uh, for a team that doesn't have any obvious superstars and has ditched its its plan sort of to buy huge money tickets to a certain extent although Gabriel Jesus of course was was not cheap but I'm thinking of our good friend uh, Pepe it's it's amazing it's amazing what they've done Um, I think we we must give them huge huge credit for that
2: with with the youngest, well, other than the Southampton, but the youngest team in the Premier League as well. So it's not. It's potentially this is the first season of three or four or five really good seasons. So yeah, you can sometimes with clubs you get this feeling that you got it with Liverpool a few seasons ago um, that something was about to happen and and it did, and it really it does feel like that at Arsenal at the moment. And um, yeah, I think as everyone said that you know Leeds Ellen Road is that sort of classic test of uh, you know a London team coming up to Yorkshire, and but they they should cope pretty well, I think. Hmm.
1: Well, lots of other things happening this weekend in the Premier League, and we'll be talking about some of it and, and on this day next.
3: Looking for an assist
1: with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a
3: real person any time, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pearce, Ollie Kaye and the very best football writers around. 13th of October, listener.
1: And if that sounds familiar, it's probably because that's today's date. But I mean, if it sounds familiar beyond that, it's because on this day, 29 years ago, the Netherlands met England in Rotterdam. Two great footballing nations competing for one place at USA 94, as Brian Moore put it in his preamble. And one of the... well, a game that really defined an era, perhaps, for for the English national side. A great team talk from Graeme Taylor, head of the game. In life, there's so many opportunities, and they're always round about. But there's too many people in life that never see them. Then there are those people who see the opportunities, they don't want to grasp it. And then there's the other people that generally are life's winners. They see the opportunities, they go looking for them, and when they see them, they grasp them. And that's what you're facing now on the football field, isn't it? Uh,
4: yeah, and also a great press conference I saw on YouTube just the other day, uh, Graham Taylor admonishing a journalist for having a bad face and being downtrodden <laughs> before the game. But I must say those doubts, of course, were borne out. Wow. Well. Um, I'm not sure they, were, they could be blamed, the media, for, for having a pretty yeah, bad feeling about this game.
1: Well... Who could be blamed? Perhaps the referee. England, of course, famously didn't get the result they needed. They didn't get to go to USA 94. It finished 2-0 to the Netherlands. It was the game of Ronald Koeman not getting a red card.
2: Need VAR, didn't we? Mm.
1: He's going to flick one He's gonna now. He's going to flick one. 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 Yeah, there you go. And then, of course, the farce against Sam Marino. It did give us, though, material for what was either the, the best English football documentary ever made or... or Possibly the best English football documentary ever made. I'm talking about The Impossible Job, a.k.a. Do I Not Like That? If you haven't seen it, see it. It's on YouTube, all of it. I saw The Crucial Bit again this morning. That's why I'm a little bit excited. (laughs) Made by the wonderful Scottish director, Ken McGill. What a talent. Shout out to Ken. And of all the moments, there's so many glorious moments in it because you've got players mic'd up during the training sessions. Above all, you've got Graham Taylor mic'd up right through that disastrous, ultimately qualifying campaign. And his bit when when the penalties are not given and Kuman's not sent off for a clear last man foul on David Platt, I mean, it's just one of the most obvious red card decisions, surely, ever. And Graham Taylor inquires of the fourth official, what sort of thing is happening here? And then later <laughs> on, later on the absolutely, and really really quite poignant
2: line when he knows that the jig is up.
3: I just said to your colleague, referee's got me the sack. Thank you never so much for that, won't you?
2: Which, A... He resigned, so it wasn't sacked. And B, I would argue that Graham Taylor got himself the sack with a series of inept performances with one of England's best ever squads. But you know, respect the I narrative, did... Duncan. Wow, well, it's a bit like people like liking football shirts from the nineties that no one liked at the time. It's like oh. Graham Taylor's reputation is, you know, he's a very nice man, etc. But Lovely that man. that whole qualification process was was terrible, and you know, that's the last World Cup England weren't at, and it was
0: yeah, a, it was a big it, loss. If you were to flip-reverse it, can you, can you make a case that if England had gone to the World Cup, that, that that influx of foreign players to the Premier League wouldn't have happened quite so easily? If England had gone and sort of got knocked out in the last 16 or whatever, would would there have been the same impulse to go and buy all these foreign players, because they were better than the players in our league, capital O,
4: capital L? I mean, if you remember the, the, the brouhaha about Klinsmann signing... Hmm. York's sort of counter-factual um, history suggests that he might not have been signed if England had a good worker. I I don't think that's true. I think that he would have still been seen as a massive attraction because these players just didn't rock up in the Premier League at the time because A, they, they didn't pay that much money before. They, you know, they had very little money in the 90s and, and late 80s, of course, even less. And B, because the, the, the standard of the Premier League was pretty poor.
1: Mm. Not like these days when you get matches like Nottingham Forest against Aston Villa. Yeah.
4: <laughs> he said, segueing
1: along nicely. A game that took place on Monday night and was described by Daniel's story. If you didn't see it, listener, apparently it was a cross between one of those Victorian scrums between two Derbyshire villages that gone for three days <laughs> and a 1987 First Division match. What does Daniel mean, Duncan?
2: Well, it was a functional. Um, display from both teams. It had the combined xG total of of one, exactly one, which is the lowest of any any game but in the Premier League Two actual goals, two actual goals. So mm. yeah, the the traditionalists were knee sliding everywhere. But um, I mean Villa have now been involved in four of the six uh, games with the the lowest xG in the Premier League this season, which I think speaks to the sort of negativity around them uh, and pretty much every Villa fan. I know or see online is is not
0: happy
4: mm. is Steven Gerrard holding back Aston Villa or the other way around I, I think the former
0: okay I, I would say the former as well I think the, I've had this argument with people um quite a lot recently to so the extent that I actually got called out online by John Sitton um <laughs> the uh, amazing the um bring your dinner I, I've not <laughs> not responded uh, I don't want to bring my dinner, but I think for managers of, of clubs of that level, it's really important to be able to sell the fans on a vision. You need to tell them that there's a style of play that you're trying to implement, or a a type of player that you want to emphasise, whether it's young or creative or whatever it is. And to an extent, it can all be philosophy,
4: completely... a project.
0: Yeah, like and to an extent, it can be bullshit. It's fine if it's bull. No one, no one's going to care, but. You have to try and sell them on something, and I just think that Villa at the moment are a really clear example of a club where the manager has completely failed to convince the fans of what he is trying to do, what his vision is for the long term. If you look at Forest, Forest fans believe in what Steve Cooper is offering them. If you look at Southampton, where Hassan Huttle seems to have been on the brink of the sack for about two years, the fans basically believe in his in his vision of play, in his style, his, his approach. We're, we're, we're what a year into Gerard's reign at Villa, and I don't think the fans have got the slightest clue what a Stephen Gerard Aston Villa team looks like.
2: The worst thing that happened was um, Coutinho scoring and playing really well on his debut against Manchester United because I think that kind of just set mm-hmm. in motion that he was just going to amble around and score long range goals and they'd be fine. And it's kind of since then it's slowly, slowly got worse.
1: Well, oh, with all of that, I am excited to say that <laughs> Villa's clash with Chelsea is the one. Game being televised of those four 2 o'clock Sunday kickoffs. As for Forest, after their 1-1 draw on Monday, they will be facing Wolves Saturday at 3 o'clock. It's the first ever Premier League meeting between these two clubs. First top division meeting since March 1984. What was number one? China in Your Hands by Tapao. Great shout, Rory, but not correct. Feels like it should have been, but no, it was another another iconic 80s track Tiffany's
4: I think Tiffany I think no, we're someone
1: now. something close at home for you Rafa draft work
2: no Beethoven
4: no. No. <laughs> hold on what year is this Nina 1999 boom
1: 1984 it wasn't 1999
4: of course Rafa it was Sorry, 99,
1: 99 Luftballons <laughs> <Ballons> <laughs> by Nina with wow. her leather kex and armpits and things and uh, really a revelatory moment I think for many Oh
4: right, you're do, do, a different bit Alright, <laughs> right, listener, stop that
1: Interesting build up to this game Forrest have fired all of the people who hired all of those players for them uh, but kept their manager uh, Wolves are still without a manager uh, because it turns out Yulin Lopategui said no thank you That's what we hear
0: Wolves have had one win in sixteen. Forrest have had one win in nine. Missing out on Lopetegui strikes me as maybe being a bullet dodge just for the for the fact that they sacked Bruno Lars just his football was boring and they didn't store any dolls. So, so why would you go and appoint Julian Lopetegui? What's the, what's the logic there? It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever that, that he was their first... He's obviously got a decent CV and he's, he did well at Porto, although that was quite some time ago. He did well but at Seville prior to this season. He did okay at Seville, I think. I think he probably met expectations at Seville and massively underperformed in this season. They looked like they were in the title race for a bit last year, which I will grant you, James, was something of an achievement. I mean, it's three top four finishes, but the, I, I guess it, it, it also speaks to the maybe decline of other traditional additional
1: powers in, in in La Liga.
0: But also, I mean, Sevilla had been kind of skirting and flirting mm. with the top four before that anyway. That's just kind of, that is their natural, that has become their natural position in Spain. But I ju- it's the style of football, which is why Sevilla fans didn't really take to him, why, to an extent why it didn't work out, to then import that to a club where they've, the fans are sick of not scoring goals and not attacking, it just seems really, really odd. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, uh, looking forward to seeing who will be coming in then. In the meantime, they are taking on Nottingham Forest that Saturday at three. Saturday tea time, it's Spurs Everton. Conte Spurs beat uh, Lampard Everton 5 0 in this fixture last season. Fulham Bournemouth, there's also this weekend. Uh, There's Leicester Crystal Palace. There's Brentford against Brighton. and West Ham and Man United. I mentioned Man United taking on Newcastle. Uh, West Ham are going to be away at Saints. Both West Ham and Man United play in the Europa League and Conference League on Thursday. Man United are up against Amunia Nicosia and uh, West Ham host Anderlecht. What of those games are you most excited by? Pick one and then we'll
2: wrap it up for today. Duncan. Um. Man United, Newcastle, I think. Uh, My favourite Premier League goal, the one where Wayne Rooney is arguing with the ref, jogs a bit, smashes it in and then turns back to the ref, which is uh, always good. Um, We've we've also seen Erling Haaland shatter most of Mick Quinn's records in recent weeks, but there are still a few that remain. Um, He's still got the record of scoring in his first six Premier League appearances. Obviously, Anthony's three for three so far, so... um, Mm. We'll see if uh, if the Quinn family maintain any dominance of the league uh, Mm. after the next few weeks.
1: Newcastle have only won once at Old Trafford in the last half a century. That victory coming, you may be unsurprised to
4: hear during the David Moyes season.
1: Rafa, what game is catching your eye?
4: Well, I'm super excited about an eight-hour round train trip to Anfield. Oh yeah, to watch England's best two teams of last season. HM. Yeah, kind of over the
1: last five years, really.
0: Yeah, fair absolutely. enough. Rory, what's tickling your fancy? Well, I mean, obviously Liverpool City is the big game of the weekend. I think Leeds Arsenal will be fascinating, but a little mention maybe for Fulham Bournemouth mm. because they are they are two Fulham have dropped just a, they dipped just a little bit the last few weeks, but they are both massively overperforming expectations. I think. The eighth versus ninth, which I'm I'm pretty sure that what nine games nine ten games into the season, no one would have thought this would be eighth versus ninth, particularly in that order. Gary O'Neill I think, has done a brilliant job, uh, and I think Fulham looked like a a decent bet to stay up. So I think that mm. both they are two teams who both deserve credit for their start to the season, even though they haven't been spectacular. Also, this was the top two from the Championship last season, and their clash at Craven Cottage. In
1: England, second tier saw that uh, Bournemouth go straight from kickoff. That everyone got very excited
2: about. Oh uh, yeah. Also, mm-hmm. Bournemouth. Just to back up Rory's point, one of the biggest overperformances I've ever seen from a team. They've got less than five xG this season, and they've got twelve points. It's it's like it's breaking all breaking. Yeah. So it's probably not gonna last. But you know, don't appoint Gary O'Neill permanently because I think that will break the spell. Just oh, leave it. Right. One of those things don't don't touch anything. you know like don't, if your phone charger's not working but you get it just to work just don't just got a
1: soul at Man United or a phone charger. I mean' yeah, both
2: valid both have analogies. Analogies. <laughs>
1: mm. Okay. nobody mentioned Saints West Ham which has ended nil nil in the last two seasons in the Premier League. but it's happening Sunday two o'clock. Very good. Well, I hope you do have an enjoyable weekend on and off the field whatever it is you're watching. Thanks for being with us today to Rafa, to Duncan, to Rory, to producer Charlie and you, listener. We'll be back on Monday to round up all of the drama and the excitement. I do hope you'll be joining us for that for now from all of us here. It's goodbye. Oh, the questions. Wait, the questions. That's right. If you want to play this along at home and you've got your order in for the Totally Football book, Listen away now, if you know what I mean. Right? Everybody gone who doesn't want to know? All right, then. Here's the answers. What did Mario Mandzukic do in the 2018 World Cup final that no one had ever done before? Anybody?
0: Score and get sent off. Score a goal and an Uh, own goal
1: in the final. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Question two. Who were the only team to do the double over Manchester City last season? Palace? No, I thought this was uh, Spurs. Oh, yeah. Mm. Question three. Who was the first English player to score for a non-English side in a Champions League final? Steve McManaman? Yeah, McManaman. Boom. Yeah, that's right, listener. It was. All right, we're back on Monday. See you then.
3: You've been listening to The Totally Football
4: Show, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on The Athletic app and discover bonus content by following The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very
0: latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally.
4: The Athletic.